I grew up the son of two Haitian immigrants. Poverty, neglect, discrimination defined my life. And then I met Jesus. And now I can say, it is well with my soul. We're going to be in Exodus 15 and looking at verses 22 through 27. And we'll get there in just a moment. But I feel the presence of God. And for just a moment, you know, if you remember where Jesus found you and what he's done for you, I just don't want to move past this moment just yet because it's not the result of what has taken place after Christ that I can say it as well. There's still difficulties. I can't tell you the last time I've had a conversation with my father. I don't know if he's alive or not. Love my mother, her health is deteriorating. I mean, they're just issues that abound. But when I think about my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross. <laughs> That's why now I can say it is well with my soul. Because at some point, the trumpet is going to sound. And the clouds are going to roll back. And my Savior is going to descend and say, son, it's time to go home. So it's not what's happening around me, but it's because what God has done in me and what he has promised to me that I can declare boldly, it is well with my soul. If you're waiting for something or someone to cause you to feel that kind of peace, I can guarantee you, you will never find it. But if you turn to Jesus and lock arms with the lover of your soul, it doesn't matter what's going on. It is well with my soul. All right. I'm going to pray because I need the Lord to move in me and through me. I ask that you would join me in a word of prayer as we prepare to dive into God's word, see what the Spirit is speaking to the church. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for loving us. Not when we got it right, 
but while we were in our trespasses and sins. And for answering our greatest problem, sin. And Lord, now we do not gather here today because we were looking to be entertained or because we were looking to check the box. But because we believe that you are God alone and beside you there is none other. So Father, because of what you said in your word, we gather expectantly that you have spoken already, that you will continue to speak and meet us at the point of our need. So as only you can, Father, do what only you can do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Exodus 15, verses 22 through 27. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. This is the word of the Lord, and it's good all by itself. We see here Moses and the people of Israel were setting out from the Red Sea. And what my brother Sean unpacked last week lets us know that they were leaving on the heels of a great celebration. Because they had experienced the most significant military victory in the history of the nation of Israel to date. And one may even be able to argue of all time. They witnessed the Lord defeat the Egyptian army. And after singing a song of praise and much celebration, pulling out the tambourines and dancing, the children of Israel set out. And they went into the wilderness. And the Bible lets us know that they went a three days journey into the wilderness. And we could see the significance of this moment if we look back at Exodus chapter 3. Verse 15, Moses was told by God to let Pharaoh know that he wanted his people to come and worship him. And this was the request that Moses was told to make before Pharaoh. 
And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And so now here, as we see in today's passage, the children of Israel have gone a three days journey into the wilderness. They have arrived to the place where they were to sacrifice to the Lord their God, where they were to worship. So coming off the heels, just three days removed from the greatest victory in the history of the nation of Israel to date and maybe of all times, they arrived to the place that God had told them they were to go and worship. One might imagine that the only celebration more significant than the one that happened three days ago was the one that was getting ready to happen after arriving three days journey into the wilderness. But the word lets us know that they came to a place, a place called bitter, because the water wasn't drinkable. And instead of giving God praise, they complained. They grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? The people demonstrate a lack of confidence in God and his servant. Instead, they were taking their cues from their conditions. See, just a moment ago, three days ago, they were terrified. Then they saw God move, and then they celebrated. And now they go a three days journey into the wilderness, and they see bitter water, and they can't drink the water. And now they're wondering, did you bring us out here to die? Now, just so that we can be clear, this wasn't a group of two or three people. Again, some biblical scholars or historians believe that it could have been upwards to two million, two and a half million people. So drinking water could be a problem that needed to be resolved. So I don't want to make it look like the children of Israel weren't dealing with a significant problem. But what they really failed to realize was that the pillar of cloud and fire was still present with them, the same pillar that created a force field, the same God who split the sea, the same God who crushed the enemy, the same God who took them a three days journey into the wilderness after Pharaoh repeatedly said no, no, no. But God said yes. And then we see Moses' response after the people come grumbling to him. And we see Moses demonstrating confidence in his creator. And he, being Moses, cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water. Moses demonstrates confidence in his creator. And we can see this in the two things that he did. First, Moses cried to the Lord. Moses did not look inwardly. He did not try to figure out how he could solve this problem with the skill sets that he had, with the resources. He demonstrates that he is desperately dependent on God and he knows that God is dependable. Lord, we need you. The people are grumbling. And just so that we understand that grumbling didn't mean that you're just like, man, Moses, we just said no. The people are ready to kill me. And I don't have nothing to solve this situation. He's crying out to God. And many of us could probably identify with Moses in that moment. I recognize when I've come to the end of my ability. And I see that I cannot do this. And if you are a believer, then you might be inclined to cry out to God. 
But Moses doesn't just cry out to God. There's something else that Moses does. After crying out to God, the scriptures say that Moses threw a log into the water. But the Lord showed him a log. Now, this word showed actually can be translated teach, train, to instruct. So it wasn't that God just said to Moses, hey, Moses, there's a log over there. Okay, thanks. I have this problem over here. No, what the scriptures are letting us know is that Moses gave, uh, God gave Moses instructions. Hey, Moses, there's this log or that word could be translated tree. I want you to chop this down or pick that up and I want you to throw it into the water. Now, here's the important part to understand of the confidence that Moses demonstrates. Moses actually gets the log or chops down the tree and throws it into the water. Now, I'm not a scientist. But in my little bit of understanding between wood and water, I don't get how in the world the properties of the water are going to change because of the wood. God, that sounds great, but I'm asking you to help us with our water problem. And you're asking me to throw a wood, a piece of wood into the water. What's that going to do? See, that's not what Moses' response was. It says Moses threw the log into the water. Moses did what God said, even if it didn't make any sense. And that's sometimes where God may lose you or me. See, because sometimes I try to process what God is calling me to based on my logic. The only problem with that is that God created logic. Therefore, he's not bound to my ability to understand his purposes or his plans. And so if I limit what God is telling me to do and my obedience to him based on my ability to understand it, then we're going to have a disconnect. But if I know who God is, then I just grab the log and I throw it into the lake. I don't understand what's going to happen, but I know that God is well able. So I'm going to just do what he says. Moses demonstrates confidence because he cries out to his creator and then he does what he says, even if it doesn't make any sense. Now, the question that we must answer is how did Moses come to have this kind of confidence? Because if we can answer that question, then we can better understand this particular passage. But we can also understand the rest of Exodus. And I may even be able to argue we could probably understand the whole of Scripture. See, because how Moses came to have this kind of confidence tells us what God is doing in this passage and throughout even the Exodus journey. So if you haven't been with us for a long time, allow me to take us on a trip down memory lane. Exodus chapter 3, I'm going to do a high-level overview. So if you weren't here for a while, you need to go back and listen to some of the sermons as we've walked through Exodus since January. But Moses met his creator on the backside of a mountain as he was leading a flock of sheep. And Moses saw this bush that was on fire, but it wasn't burning down. His attention was drawn to it. And the Lord engaged in this conversation with Moses. Exodus chapter 3, starting at verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. 
I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God spoke to Moses, and Moses this leader who is confident in his creator, what does he say back to God? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He being God said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, you would think at that point, Moses being confident, he hears what God says, and he's going to do what God said. But that's not the response that we see from Moses. Moses' response actually is reminiscent of the children of Israel's response in the passage that we read this morning. Verse 13, then Moses said to God, if... Not that I'm agreeing to, but if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So first of all, like, I don't even know you like that for me to go and tell the people of Israel that this is going to happen. What do I say? Who do I say sent me? That was excuse number one that Moses gave. And then we jump a little bit further down. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, and this is after God had a conversation with Moses to encourage him to let's go. I'm with you. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. This is after God said they will believe you and listen to your voice. For they will say the Lord did not appear to you. And then the Lord gives him these three signs that the people will know that I have sent you. All right, cool. Got it. Now we're ready to go. No. Verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. And then the Lord says, well, I made your tongue. I'm going to give you the words to say. All right, let's go. No, Moses' response, verse 13. But he said, oh, Lord, please send someone else. I'm like, wait, what happened to this confident, bold, strong leader that's willing to do whatever God says, no matter what it looks like? And Moses didn't stop there. You jump over to chapter five. Moses goes and he's finally going to go. All right, the Lord got angry with him. Moses was at least enough convinced to just, I better make a move. I better get off this mountain. So Moses makes his way to Egypt. He talks to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is not responsive. Pharaoh makes life worse for the children of Israel. The children of Israel, you got to go back and listen to the sermons. The children of Israel revolt against Moses and they say, we hate you and the camel you rode in on. Get out of here. And Moses cries out to God. Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Are you hearing confidence in Moses right now? It's like he sounds just a little bit shaky. 
Doesn't sound too sure. It's like he keeps on taking these steps, but he's just stumbling and fumbling through. Like, all right, I'm going to go now. I've given you all these excuses, and you still want me to go. All right, I tried it. It didn't work. God tells Moses to go back, talk to the children of Israel. Moses goes and talks to the children of Israel. They still don't listen. Then God tells Moses, go and talk to Egypt and Pharaoh. And Moses' response, chapter 6, verse 12. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, The people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Just painting a real picture of Moses. Moses was not very confident as we just read from chapter 3 through chapter 6. He kept going back and forth, waffling and wavering. He do and then experience something that didn't go so well. And want to just say, mm, I'm good then. And then God would say, go. And he'd do. And, and it was just this back and forth. But then Moses continued to walk with the Lord. But more importantly, the Lord continued to walk with Moses. And the Lord demonstrated to Moses over those 10 plagues that we had walked through for a couple of months. That he was going to get his glory. And see, that's the important part to understand, because if we make Moses this mythical, legendary being, we forget that Moses was a man just like you and me. And it was God's grace and mercy. How did Moses come to this kind of confidence? God was graciously demonstrating to Moses repeatedly that he could be trusted. And Moses, over time, learned this very valuable lesson. And after much conversation on the mountain and, and after seeing disappointment in the, in the response from Pharaoh and the people and seeing that over and over again, Moses started to catch a clue. I'm not going to take my cues from the conditions, but I'm putting my confidence in my creator. And because he's faithful, I'm going to continue to follow him no matter what. And so now we fast forward to chapter 15, verse 22 through 27, and you see a whole different man. Listen, it's looking bad over here. Lord, we need you. You're the same God who sent me from the backside of a mountain and walked me through all those trials and tribulations. You're the same God who walked us out of Egypt through a sea and now into this wilderness where we don't have water. The same God who was faithful to do all of that over all these years, I need you. And whatever you tell me to do, I don't care if I don't understand it. I don't care what it looks like. You have proven that you're faithful over and over again. Grab a log, toss it into a lake. Michael, what's that going to do? I have no clue, but I trust the one who gave me the instructions. I'm going to just do what he says, no matter what it looks like. I don't need to be a scientist. I don't need to have it all figured out. The one lesson that I need to grab a hold of is that the God that I'm serving is trustworthy. And when I grab a hold of that lesson, there's nothing that he can't tell me to do that I won't do it. It doesn't make any sense. I'm not about to let my logic cause me to disobey my Savior. I'm going to do whatever he says, no matter what it looks like. Moses learned that lesson. And Moses learned that lesson because God was willing to teach him. Stumbling and fumbling, God was gracious, he was patient, he was merciful. And the Lord is doing that same thing in this passage. God makes provision for his people, but it wasn't to pacify their crying. This is not the Lord trying to satisfy their temper tantrum. This is not the parent 
going down all three that sees their kid have a meltdown because they want that candy bar and you know you shouldn't give it to them because then you're encouraging that nonsense. But just because you just want to be quiet because they're embarrassing you, you give them the candy bar. Just shh, stop it. You're embarrassing me. And you give them the candy bar. That's not what God is doing here. Just a sidebar for a moment. Listen, don't you do that nonsense. If you need to, the clause of correction. I'll teach it to you later. Come see me after. You just grab them just in a nice way. It leaves no bruising, causes very little commotion. And you just drag them over like you're going to come on right now. You're going to make a spectacle of yourself and we're going to find ourselves in the bathroom. I don't know what you believe about popping, but we'll talk about that later in Proverbs. But what I'm saying, God did not satisfy the tantrum. That's not what this was. God was teaching his people that they could trust him. He was making provision so that they could see that their problem was not bigger than their creator. The same way he taught Moses. I'm making provision so that you can see that I'm trustworthy. I'm able to solve any solution, any situation that you're going through. I got you. Oh, you got me? The same God who did that? Okay, then I'm holding on to you. God is graciously teaching his people a lesson. And so in this story here, where God turns the bitter water to sweet water, again, not to satisfy a temper tantrum, but to teach the people that they can trust in their God. And that's the same lesson that God is teaching you and me. See, all too often we're on this journey with Jesus, and when we stumble because we've allowed the culture to influence the way that we live, we feel like somehow now I need to be perfect in order for, uh, to receive God's love. I need to nail this thing. I need to be flawless if God is going to really love me and walk with me. You did not read that in Scripture. Moses was not flawless. I know we read through the second half of Exodus like, man, I just wish I could be a leader like Moses. Might I remind you, just a spoiler alert, Moses did not go into the, to the land that God had promised. Right? Moses wasn't perfect, even to the end. But yet we see on the Mount Transfiguration, Moses was seated in heavenly places. Right? So it's not your perfection. It's not your performance. It's God's grace and his mercy. And he's such a loving God that even though you may stumble, fumble, trip, and fall, God continues to teach you that he's trustworthy and that you can be confident in him, that he'll come through every time. So there's just a newsflash for just at least one person in here because I feel it in my heart. You're beating yourself up because you did not nail it and God is looking to encourage you and pick you up because he's the one holding you. So let's not come into this place trying to save face and act like I was flawless on my way in. No, you weren't. And you're probably not going to be flawless on your way out. Thank you, Jesus, for grace and mercy, for steadfast love, that he would graciously teach my hard head to soften up to his loving truth. But God doesn't just leave the children of Israel there. He makes provision, and then he makes a pact with the children of Israel. He enters into a covenant, a formal agreement between two or more parties. Verse 25, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. The Lord. Verse 24b, 
made a statute and a rule. This word statute means something prescribed or owed, a requirement. The word rule actually, if we understand it properly, is more a ruling, a just judgment. So God gave the children of Israel a requirement and a ruling. And we would call that a covenant. Now listen, because I know our cultural moment, you start talking about rules, requirements, covenant, and people start to get a little bit squirmish. And because we make up sayings when we talk about covenant, oh, you about to put on the ball and chain. Like that's not what a covenant is. See, don't allow the messiness of man to cause us to miss out on the comfort that God provides by giving us a covenant. A covenant brings confidence into a relationship. Without a covenant, there's just going to be confusion. I'm going to be uncertain. How do I know that you're going to make good on what you said? See, but when I look over at my wife, I can know that she's going to be there because she said till death do us part. Better or worse, rich or poor, sick, health, I'm with you. Okay, great. That brings confidence. I do. And we will walk together until the Lord calls us home. That's what a covenant does for a relationship. Without that agreement. Now I'm sitting here wondering, like, I wonder if, if she's going to come back. And why is she not returning my calls? It's going to bring a little bit of uncertainty that's going to cause me to wonder, like, are we really in this thing? But now because of this covenant relationship, I have confidence. And that's what the word teaches us, that this covenant that God enters into with his people, it was always with the intent of bringing confidence into the relationship. We see that back in Genesis chapter 15. Abram had the same question of God. He wasn't quite sure how he could be sure that what God said would actually come to pass. And we see God's response. Start reading at verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Abram, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Abram had to do something. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, making this pathway. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. 
On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. This covenant brought confidence to Abram that that which he was not certain of, how will I know? I'm going to tell you how you'll know. I'm giving you my word. Abram would not live to see this covenant come to pass in its fullness. He did not go into the land. It wasn't until four generations, 400 years after, as we see now in this story, that the Lord would give the land to the people of Israel. But Abram continued to pass this covenant on and teach it to his children, their children, their children, and continuing to pass it on because God was going to make good on his work. A covenant is a good thing. It brings comfort into the relationship. And so God lets his people know, I'm giving you a statute and a rule, a requirement and a ruling. And it's real simple. Two things. Obey me. That's it. Keep my word. You obey me, I will bless you. And that's what we see as the Lord goes on to communicate this covenant. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. In other words, in summary, obey the leader and obey the law. The voice of the Lord was spoken to the people through the servant Moses. We'll see that more as we go on. And God had every intention on the word that he spoke to Moses and through Moses to the people that they would obey the voice of the Lord. And then the Lord was going to give them statutes, plural, laws that they were to follow. The scriptures tell us it's 613 laws to be exact. And we're going to start unpacking some of those over the summer. And God's intent was, I'm going to give you my word, and I expect you to keep my word. Obey my leader and obey my law. And if you do that, I will put none of these diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. But then we could understand the opposite then to be true. What happens if I don't obey the voice of the Lord and his law? Well, the diseases that were put on Egypt. Those plagues that you saw <clears throat> happen to you too. But they don't have to. Because as long as you obey me, the Lord is saying, I will be with you. I am the Lord, your healer. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to cover you. But when we disobey, we disconnect, and that leaves us out here on an island all by ourselves. So God gives his children a covenant. So that they might know and have confidence in this relationship. All right, Lord, so if I obey you, then I can be fully confident that you're going to keep cover us. Yes, exactly. Wonderful. Thank you. I can enter in confidence into this relationship. So the Lord proves himself, and then he makes this agreement with his people so that they can walk in confidence with him. And then this passage closes out. They make it to Elam where there are 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. And I'm thinking, Lord, well, if you knew that there was all these springs of water and these palm trees, well, why'd you stop us in Mara, 
where there was bitter water. See, because God was making a point. It's not your conditions, but it's that I am with you. And the Lord shows him, I will provide. It's like the signature on the end of the contract. It's like, how can I be confident? Look, see, I make provisions. I provided in the bitter situation, I made sweet water. I'm telling you that I will keep you and cover you, and look how I continue to make provisions. You got 12 springs, fresh water. Go ahead and drink until you're happy. God provides, and he demonstrates that over and over again. And he demonstrates that with the full expectation that we would trust him, that we would obey him, because we're confident in him, that you, God, who has been faithful through and through, that you will be faithful to keep your word till the end. So it doesn't matter what it looks like when I know that I have the word of God with me to remind me that he will make good on his promise. And again, God does that same thing for you and for me. People of God, we're coming off of the heels of the greatest victory in the history of mankind, bar none. Listen to the word of God. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus defeated the greatest enemy that we could ever come against. And now... He has provided a way for us. He defeated by nailing it to the cross. We're just two days removed from that great victory. Someone may say 2,000 years, but the Bible says that 1,000 years is a day and a day is 1,000 years. So in God's timing, it's two days. We're not that far removed. Right? We may look at Egypt or we may look at Israel and say, oh, well, man, they were just three days removed from seeing God defeat their enemy. Why would they doubt him now? Well, I can ask myself the same question. You just saw Christ defeat sin, death in the grave, nailed it to the cross. Two days removed from the greatest victory in the history of mankind. Why would you doubt him now? Right, but God didn't just make provision. He also made this pact with us. Hebrews. This is probably one of my favorite passages of all time. I'm going to contain it so that we can close it. But you should go back and just marinate on it a little bit more. Hebrews 6. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the pact that he made, you and me, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, his name and his character, in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement, confidence to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have as a sure and steadfast 
anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. A sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. In other words, it doesn't matter what it looks like. God has made a guarantee. He's given us this covenant so that we can be confident that he's going to come back for us again. So what do we do when we find ourselves in a bitter situation where it doesn't look good? It looks like things are falling apart. I can't quite make it out. I don't have any solution. Do we respond like the nation of Israel or do we respond like Moses? Question for you. Have you come to know your creator well enough to say no matter what it looks like, he's faithful. And because of his covenant, I take confidence. If he doesn't do anything else, he's done enough. He's demonstrated that he's trustworthy. So like Moses, who learned that he can trust God, I will cry out to God because I'm desperately dependent on God. And then I will do whatever he says, no matter what it looks like, no matter what it feels like, no matter what anybody else is saying, no matter the odds that are stacked up against me, if people talked about me, if they're still talking about me because of what God says about me. I have a sure and steadfast hope. Anchor for the soul. I love this part right here because this is where we get this confidence from. In which it is impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to lie. God could do anything. No, he can't. He can't lie. It's impossible. I didn't make that up. I was like, oh, you can't say God can't do anything. He said he can't do anything. He said it's impossible for him to lie. Right? So in other words, if we understand that if God says a thing, he's going to do it, then we are excited about the covenant. Lord, thank you for the guarantee, the oath that you made upon yourself that if I flee to you for refuge, that you will cover me and you will keep me. Where is my hope and confidence in then? Is it in what's going on around me? No, it's in the creator who says that he can keep me. And not only that he can, but that he will if I flee and take refuge in him. Where are you going to try to find your confidence? People of God, don't let that sweep over you. And just push that to the backside. Wrestle with this. Wrestle with it for real. Because in our culture, we can find answers in a whole lot of places. If I could just, and I just need to push a little bit more, and then if I can get to this status, right, I can look for it in other places. And the Lord is saying, no, you need to flee to me for refuge. I'm the only one who will keep you. I'm the only one who can cover you. I'm your hope. I'm the anchor for your soul. And if we are not willing to stand confident on the word of God, then we'll start to try to figure it out on our own, which means we're not going to obey the word of God, but we're going to work with our logic. And now I'm out here on an island by myself wondering why in the world do I have no peace or joy? Because you're looking to things. You're looking to the conditions to try to tell you that it's all good. You need to look to Christ the one who has nailed your sins to the cross, 
who's covered you with his blood and who says you are my own. That's where our comfort and hope comes from. It's not, Lord, well, when you make this bitter water sweet, then I'll trust you. Think about it. What has he done for you? Are we really going to say to God that you have to do one more thing to prove it to me now? You, if you do this, then I will. No, absolutely not. This is not an if-then relationship from me to God. God made the if-then. Do what I said, Michael, and I will bless you. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Again, I understand that people abuse power and authority and all of these things, but do not subject God to the messiness of man. He is faithful. He is true. He is loving. He is good. He is God. And then in a category all by himself. Beside him, there is none other. Submit to God. Surrender to the Lord. And experience a hope that will be an anchor for your soul. Yes, the winds and the waves will come. And we might feel a little bit of waffling maybe, but we're not going to be drifted off out to sea. Because I'm anchored. I'm anchored on the word of God. I want to invite the praise team to come back up. And as they're coming back up, I want you to start thinking. Has God made provisions for you? Think about it. Sincerely. What provisions has God made for you? Yes, we just read it. Colossians. You don't have to think too hard. But if you grab the hold of that, then I want you to think a little bit further. Since experiencing the salvation of Jesus Christ, what other provisions has he made for you that he didn't have to, but just because he loves you? Go ahead. You can get that candy bar. Okay, you can. I'm going to give you that too. What other provisions has he made for you? Right, and now everybody in this room that knows Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior, I do not have to convince you about this next statement then then what is he worthy of from you? What do we give back to the one who took our bitter situation and made it sweet by his blood? How do we respond to him? Do we trust him? Do we obey him? Even though it may not be comfortable, forgive as you've been forgiven. Yes, Lord. Not, but they don't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. Thank you. What do we hold on to? That we don't give over to the one who is willing to give his life. Please, hear me. Don't try to hold God hostage. You only hurt yourself. He doesn't have to do another thing he's already done enough will you trust him will you walk out of this space today confident in your creator and not waiting for your conditions to change not waiting for the promotion or the job or the money or the relationship but saying God I know it's a hard life but it is well For a few minutes, 
sing that again when we come out of the prayer? It is well with my soul. Just a little bit. I don't. For a few minutes, I want you to pray. You and Jesus. A moment of transparency, a moment of truth. Lord, I was holding on to some conditions. I was waiting for you to prove yourself to me before I took that step. But not, not after today. I'm laying that down. You don't have to do another thing. You've already done enough. I want you to spend some time with the Lord, and I'll close this out in prayer.